This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 106 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Alex Corveau, and we're going to be talking all about how to work through your second draft. Last week's question was, what unusual marketing method has worked for you? But we didn't get any answers. Um, I don't know if that's just because it was a harder question to answer. Perhaps sometimes that happens. Okay, so this week's question is much easier. Well, maybe. (laughs) The question is, tell me something you've achieved this year. So straight on to then this week's book recommendation of the week, and I have decided to do something a little different. Interspersed with my own book recommendations, I am going to be every so often recommending a patron book. So um, yeah, if you are a patron then, uh, and you would like your book featured, then please do send an email to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com if you uh, let Becca know that you are a patron and uh, you're submitting your book uh, to be featured, then yeah, every so often I will be recommending a patron book. So this week's book then is called I Love You to My Heart by Matthew Dion Goodall. Matthew writes these amazing, well actually Matthew writes and illustrates these amazing children's kind of nursery rhyme, um, sort of uh, very um, full of love and heart uh, stories for kids. Now these are like kids picture books, uh, so they're sort of for naught to four or five years old I would say. And what I love most about these books, not least that he illustrated them himself, is that they often have Maori words in them and explanations and so they are like culturally culturally educational as well. So if you have a child or baby in your life and you would like to expose them to another culture, then I highly recommend uh, any of Matt's books. But uh, the one I'm featuring this week is I Love You To My Heart. So congratulations to Matt on his beautiful kids books. And yeah, the links to his books will be in the show notes. Okay, a lot to update you on this week. So we have finally finished uh, Silent September and I just want to say a big thank you to all of the patrons that joined me all the way through, um, those that joined for some of them, those that popped in once or twice. It was so, so nice to start my day seeing friendly faces. Um, I have to say, even though I did adjust, my body adjusted time-wise, I am kind of looking forward to getting my evenings back. Um, I do a lot of my reading at night and I definitely feel like I read less uh, because I was having to get up earlier and therefore go to bed earlier. And of course, uh, you know, the kid goes to bed at the same time every night. So I didn't, um, the time that I gained in the morning was really me working rather than, so I I just felt like I'd lost uh, reading time. So yeah, I am definitely looking forward to being able to go to bed later. but I am also deeply sad that I won't get to see smiling faces every morning. I, I really will genuinely miss that. And I might I might do it again. Um, I was thinking about doing it for Nano, but I'm not sure whether I will do that because obviously it's going to be super dark in the mornings and that is not going to help this night owl get out of bed. Uh, so yeah, maybe I will wait until the spring. I'm not sure. But it won't be the last time I do it that I do know. 
So this past week I have been in the throes of doing a lot of finishing tasks. I'm trying to finish up things that I owe people, finish up things that I'm um, accountable to people for, or things that I said I would do that help other people. So that come, I guess, by the time you're listening to this, um, I will be working more or less solely on getting tray finished. My goal um, is to get it done by the end of October. I don't know if that's feasible yet because I haven't started, but um, I'm certainly hoping so because I would like to finish drafting The Scent of Death during NaNoWriMo. Um, NaNoWriMo? NaNoWriMo. Damn, I always forget which way around I'm meant to say it. Anyway, um... Yes, so what else is going on? Oh yes, the audiobook. Well, um, I officially got the audiobook done, I think I did tell you guys that, and then I got it uploaded. We did have a couple of issues with the um, sat, like the levels, uh, but the guy mastering, Carl Hughes, who has a amazing audio service, um, kindly got the files edited and tweaked for me. So they all went um, to, um, I have published directly to ACX Audible um, to Find Away Voices and direct to Kobo. So I'm hoping that's going to be not too long, couple of weeks to four weeks. I think they said two to four weeks. So I'm hoping that that will launch in October. And I have recorded this week an hour and 10 minute long solo episode. <laughs> it was a monster of an episode to record. And I actually wrote it. So there's a 5,000 word blog post that will go alongside it um, on my website. And it's basically all of the lessons that I learned <laughs> which clearly there were many and they were varied because I could write 5,000 words of mistakes that I made. Um, yeah, so I will put that in launch week, I suppose. Um, I will also probably share a little snippet of the audiobook um, on here as well. And yeah, I will let you guys know when that is live. So what else am I doing? Yeah, I'm finishing up the Amazon Storyteller um, Kindle judging uh, jobby and that has been very interesting and fascinating as usual. Um, big congratulations, a couple of authors I actually know managed to uh, get their books um, on the list. I will put a link actually in the show notes so that you can see the Kindle Storyteller page. Um, what else? Ah yes, my good friend Daniel Wilcox and co-host of the Next Level Authors podcast is running a free five-day challenge to get everybody ready for Nano in, in November 2021. So his challenge is five days and he's calling it the NaNoWriMo Preppers Challenge and he's designed it to help you overcome the various like highs and lows that come along with taking and doing NaNoWriMo. When is it from? Well, it starts on the 11th and continues until the 15th of October and you'll receive free daily lessons, videos and resources, which he has created to help you understand the challenges that lie ahead of you in Nano so that you can maximise your chances of, of being a winner <laughs> or a Nano champion in 2021. Um, if you would like to find out more about his free challenge, then you can head on over to activatedauthors.com forward slash Nano and of course, as always, there will be a link to that in the show notes. And while we are on the topic of NaNoWriMo, I am honoured to once again be in Kevin J. Anderson's curated NaNoWriMo story bundle. There are, I believe, 16 books if you purchase the full bundle. Um, and there are stacks of amazing books in this bundle this year. There are, uh, well, 
Eight Steps to Side Characters is in there from me. You've got Killer Content from Andrea Pearson. You've got um, The Strategic Author's Guide to Mail a Light from Erica Everest. The Relaxed Author from Joanna Penn and Mark Lefebvre. Uh, release Strategies from Craig Martel. Your 30-day NaNoWriMo prep workbook from Michelle Jeffries. There's also books from Michael Laron, from Monica Lionel, from Patricia McLean and Tao Wong and uh, something as well, 50% off, I'm going to say this wrong, Jutoh 3, which is a kind of all-encompassing digital writing, planning, plotting, formatting uh, bit of software. So a massive bundle packed full of amazing books um, and you can, it's a pay what you like bundle just as it was last year. So you can choose the price, you can choose how much goes to the authors versus goes to story bundle. And yeah, if you would like to find out more about this story bundle for Nano, then you can by visiting storybundle.com forward slash Nano. And of course, I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to that as well. The Rebel of the Week this week is Jasmine Arch, and uh, Jasmine says, I can't claim credit for this one. I mean, the execution was mine, but I must have seen it on TV at some point, though I have no conscious recollection of it. Just a vague notion that my own devious mind didn't come up with the idea from scratch. But it was intensely satisfying all the same. One time when I was slimmer, hotter, and thus apparently a lot more gropable than I am now, I was out with my then partner. We found ourselves in a very toxic place and there were a lot of assholes on the prowl that night. However, we were there to see a certain band and were determined to, just, uh, to stay. Whenever I was not close to my guy, I got grabbed, accidentally bumped into, had beer spilled over me and I was getting kind of sick of it. So with me floating co close to boiling point, I suddenly felt a hand on my bum. I spun blindly and before this guy had the chance to wipe the drunken smirk off his face, I grabbed his junk. <laughs> oh my god, I grabbed him. I grabbed his junk, squeezed as hard as I could, dug my nails in for good measure and shouted at the top of my lungs, do you like that? No? Well, neither do I. I let go and marched off as he stood there stammering some sort of reply I couldn't care less about. For the rest of the night, no one came near me, no butt grabs or boob grazes. It was delightful. My only regret is not remembering where I got the idea from, because honestly, I wish I could send them a thank you note. I think that is fantastic. Oh my goodness me. I, as you can tell, I obviously laugh, laughed out loud. Um, I just love that it's girl power, that you got your own back. And too fucking right. Like, what gives people the right, what, what gives, what makes people think they have the right to just grab other people like that? How fucking dare they? Um, yeah, and I just want to say thank you so much for the lovely comments that also was in the email. I really appreciate um, the kind words. No new patrons this week, but a big thank you to all of my existing patrons. You guys mean the world to me. You fill me with joy and love and you make me feel things. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. 
This week's episode is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, and I was kind of sick of my voice, so I have recruited some patrons who are prolific users of Pro Writing Aid to talk to you about why they like it. So here is a very quick snippet from Caitlin Duncan, who is an author, a hybrid author, and YouTuber. She was recently on an episode talking about rights reversion and has published Take Back Your Book. So Caitlin, take it away. Tell us why you like Pro Writing Aid. For me, Pro Writing Aid is a constant companion for every writing project. I dedicate two whole steps of my editing process for Pro Writing Aid to ensure that my books are at the level that my readers expect. I love how this style and grammar editor brings my writing to a whole other level and I'm constantly improving my craft every time I use it. I also enjoy using the browser extension so I can ensure that even if I'm down to the deadline with an author newsletter or a very important email from my publishing network that my communication is clear and effective every single time. And I also love how you get lifetime access to this program, which gives me the confidence that I don't have to worry about another subscription service. And the lifetime updates truly make this a worthwhile investment in my career and life. That's it from me this week. Let's get on with the interview. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Alex Corvo. Alex is an editor with over 10 years experience of helping authors. She is the author of the upcoming release, The Big Picture Revision Checklist, a book about that magical second draft, which I'm sure we are going to talk all about. Alex lives in Michigan in the perfect town on the perfect street in the perfect house. Besides books, her other true love is key lime pie. And would you know, I've never had key lime pie. (laughs) (laughs) For for listeners, Alex's face was very shocked at this revelation. (laughs) What I, I take it it tastes of lime. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was some weird, like, you know, nuanced pie that was named after limes, but not actually lime. So is it like cheesecake or? Similar, similar. It's a, it's a lime custard in a graham cracker crust. Okay. Okay. Well, there we go. I have learned something today (laughs) and it's all about pie. Okay. Well, um, tell everyone a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today. Uh, I am a uh, science fiction and romance author under a super secret pen name. And under my own name, I am an editor and also a writing instructor. Uh, Since 2014, I have been teaching monthly classes at my local library. And it is awesome. It is the best job I ever had. Once a month, I teach a 90-minute seminar about one aspect of um, writing craft. So I have taught workshops on plot. I have taught workshops on characterization. I've taught workshops on revision or how to write a query letter. Um, And the classes at the library are so great because they're drop-in classes. Anyone can come to my classes. You do not need to sign up ahead of time. You just need to come on the day. And because of that, um, I ended up 
meeting a very wide cross-section of the writing community. This wasn't just um, people who have the time and the money to get an MFA or to be in a college program. This was very often very beginning writers. And the same questions kept coming up over and over and over. And I thought, okay, that means that there is a gap somewhere in these writers' education. And the big gap seemed to be in writing that second draft. The authors knew how to write a first draft. Many of them had did, done National Novel Writing Month and they kind of knew how to get a draft on the page. And they knew the grammar rules, so they knew how to copy edit, but they didn't know what to do in between those two stages. And I looked around for a book that could help. I could recommend a book to people and I couldn't find one. So I wrote one. And then that is how the big picture revision checklist came into being. Oh, I love that because I think that's so often what happens to writers who turn to nonfiction because they find themselves giving the same advice or like I was writing blog posts about villains and then discovered there was no book on, well, there was one other book on villains, but like it, there was a gap in the market, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly why I ended up writing uh, the, uh, the novel as well, well, non nonfiction book. Um, Okay, so we are here to talk about your book and talk about revision. So would you like to tell everyone a little bit um, like about the book? Why, um, why second drafts? Like, you know, why that second draft as opposed, well, I suppose you've talked about the gap, but why is the second draft important to you? And um, what will writers get from the book? Oh, yes. Uh, to me, the second draft is magical. Uh, the first draft is just you telling yourself the story, and it can be sort of sometimes scenes will come out of order, or you don't quite have the handle on the characters you that you want to have, but you're just telling yourself the story. The second draft is your opportunity to shape it, to make it into something that is going to make readers miss their, their stop on the train or stay up way past their bedtime. But it's also really hard to do that second draft. It is overwhelming and it's messy. And you often feel like you're looking at too many problems at once and you don't know where to start. And how do you know when you're done? So I wanted to give people a system that they could follow. So that's why my book is called The Big Picture Revision Checklist. It's more than just a checklist. It is actually instruction and examples, but it does give you a step-by-step -step system to follow if you're feeling overwhelmed doing that second draft. 
I, I really like so, so for listeners I've actually read the book I was very lucky to get an advanced copy so thank you very much for letting me read it um and I like like first of all I loved the book so for listeners you should go and uh, buy the book read the book annotate the book um but one of the things that I wanted to talk about is you um mentioned this analogy in there or this concept um where you talk about uh drafting and then revision and where the writer is in terms of outside looking in inside looking out so and I just thought it was genius so can you talk um listeners through that sure when you're drafting you are up close and personal with the characters you're 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 seeing the book through the characters eyes and you are sort of right there with them on the ground level, you're doing what they're doing and you're feeling the emotions that they're feeling. And this is critical. This is really important when you're doing the first draft and you absolutely should do it that way. But then you have to have a, a shift in your mindset when you write the second draft because now you have to step back and look outside of the book. And you have to look at the entire thing as a whole. So, you know, in terms of like, maybe if you think of it like a movie, when you're writing your first draft, you're one of the actors. But now when you're writing your second draft, you're the director and you have to pay attention to the entire thing and the lights and the sets and the, and the cameras and you have to pay attention to everything. And also you have to sort of remove the emotion a little bit when you're in your second draft. And instead of saying, oh no, this is a terrible feeling like you might feel in your first draft, in your second draft, you can take a step back and you can say, ha ha ha, my, my character's feeling so bad right now. So yeah. that's what I mean about going from the inside out and then the outside in. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I go on this like ridiculous roller coaster, not only feeling the feels of my characters, but like the doubt. And then there's like bits in the first draft where it's euphoric because you are so in it and so buried inside these characters that you don't have time to stop and feel the doubt. And then you sort of, well, for me personally, I kind of, reach the the sludgy third middle third I would say and then the doubt rears its head because I'm starting to pull out as I'm trying to pull the threads of the story together and you know you move well I move at that point more into the outside in point and then the, all the doubt sets in but and then you know you cycle back round but yeah I love that um, okay, so let's say a writer has finally got a finished first draft. How the hell do you even approach revising? Where do you start? Can you talk everyone through the process? Yes. A lot of writers try to revise their book in chronological order. They start with chapter one and they try to get chapter one perfect. And then they move on to chapter two and they try to get chapter one and chapter two perfect. And then they move on to chapter three and the cycle repeats and repeats and repeats. And usually what happens with these writers is that they don't finish. They don't finish their revision. They just keep cycling back through because when you try to revise your book chronologically, 
you're always focused on small problems. You're always looking at things at the scene level or the paragraph level, and you're never tackling the big stuff. And I don't think it's writer's fault. I think that they aren't taught a different way to do it. So instead, a better approach is to look at the big picture, look at the book as a whole and start by looking at the protagonist. Is this a hero or a heroine that we want to spend 400 pages with? After that, look at your antagonist. Is your antagonist a worthy opponent for your protagonist? Once you've got those in place, then take a look at the story stakes. Are your story stakes high enough? Are they important enough to carry an entire narrative? Mm. And only then, after you have those three things in place, should you look at the plot. And starting with the biggest, the five biggest scenes in your story, starting there, and then working down to the smaller individual scenes last. So I, I always encourage writers to look at the bigger picture first, look at the book as a whole first, and then sort of work your way down to smaller and smaller issues. It's almost like you planned an amazing book title. <laughs> <laughs> as if. I know, right? God, you're a genius. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm not sure if these are two separate questions or if they're the same question, but um, what mistakes do you see writers making? Or like, if not mistakes, like what do you think writers blind spots are like in their own work? Um, I think that besides going chronologically um, when they're doing their revision, uh, another two mistakes that I see writers making a lot the first is they're, they're afraid to make big changes. They're, they're, they only want to make the tiniest little alterations in their book instead of making the big changes. And I, I think this comes from um, the fact that writers have worked so hard to get that first draft on the page mm. that they don't want to erase that work that they've already done. And the advice that I would give writers if they're in this situation is to just trust yourself a little bit more. Trust that all of the genius that you had when you were writing your first draft, that genius is still in you and you are, you are going to come up with even better things for your second draft. So go ahead and change big things. Combine two characters into one. Make your villain uh, a different kind of villain. Change the plot. Go ahead and make those big, big changes that you know that your story needs. Mm. I always have to change the location the book starts almost every single mm -hmm. time I get about 70% of the way through because um, I I kind of skinny draft so I and by the time I've got to the end of my first draft it's really the end of my second draft and it's because uh -huh. I have this weird hybrid outlining pantsing kind of weird process but um uh so I I sort of 
skeleton and then pad out and in that padding I shuffle and move and so it, I kind of end up doing the structural edits at the same time as I'm starting to layer in the description and the emotion and the and all the rest of it but um the point is I get about 70% of the way through my process and I'm like oh my book doesn't work and it's usually because there's something massively massively wrong at the beginning sometimes I have to like wheel on the timeline like three weeks or something and sometimes I'm like oh no it's a setting but it really is a very big change and it very much changes the whole like tone outset um feel of the book and it's always for the better so yeah like don't be afraid to just hack that shit up because it'll make you right (laughs) that's right just do that yeah (laughs) and the other mistake that I see a lot of beginning writers make is hiring a professional editor too soon in their process it, I, I, I myself am a professional editor and I have seen many manuscripts come to me and it's just too early in the process. The, the author really needs to do their own self-edit first before they bring in a professional editor. I, I think I'd go one step even further than that and to say that most writers, and I'm saying most because it doesn't apply to everyone, most writers should probably share their story with another writer to get feedback before they like and then do another edit before it goes to an editor because the problem is if you don't your editor will spend so much time you know flitting between doing a copy line edit because the story you are not saying what you think you are saying and trying to give you feedback at a developmental level and the overarching story and the characters and the plot and it and it becomes a very very hard job and you get half of what you should from the editor because your your book's just not ready so if you if you send it when it is ready you will get the best out of your editor which will then lead to a better book for you well that's what I think anyway I could not agree more and, and editing is very expensive. It's, mm-hmm. it's not something that a computer can do. It's very labor intensive. So it's very expensive. And you really need to get your money's worth by taking the book as far as you can on your own before you seek out a professional editor. Absolutely. Okay, so you mentioned um, like looking at the protagonist and the antagonist very early on in the editor in your own editorial journey. Um, And you talk about a couple of things. So the first thing you talk about is showing um, the change that the protagonist goes through. And you also talk about strengthening the protagonist's flaws and where you can actually find the the flaws. So could you talk about those two things? Yes, I will, I will take the second question first. Okay. <laughs> because every writer, I think, knows that their uh, protagonist has to have strengths and has to have flaws. And we're, we're all, I think, very good at giving our heroines strengths. Um, we, we sort of like our heroines a lot. And so we want them to be interesting, good people. But then we don't want to make them into what they call a Mary Sue. We don't want to make them perfect. So we know they have to have flaws, but we don't really know what kind of flaws to give them. So what a lot of writers do is they will start giving their heroine random flaws that just 
sort of sound interesting or fun or quirky, like, you know, maybe she's really bad at cooking or, you know, maybe she just, you know, doesn't get along with her younger siblings or something that just doesn't really have anything to do with the story and doesn't have anything to do with the heroine herself. But the place to look for the flaws that you want to give your heroine is in her strengths, because every strength has a downside to it. So for example, maybe your heroine is very independent and that is her strength. Well, the downside of that is she doesn't ask for help when she really should. Or maybe your heroine sees the best in everyone. She's just one of those people who just always sees the best in you. And the downside of that is that she's rather naive and people take advantage of her. And you can also flip this on its head if you're looking at somebody's flaws first. And then you can say, well, let me build the strength out of that. So maybe you have a character who's really judgmental or really kind of selfish. And you can say, okay, that's a flaw. But the strength that comes out of that is they're very good at setting healthy boundaries. So every strength has a cost and every flaw has a bright side and you have to make sure that those two things match in your protagonist. Mm, I love that. I love that. So the other part of the question was um, the showing the change that your hero or heroine goes through because that's what that's what novels are all about. They're all about that wonderful character change, that transformation that happens. But it's not enough for the author to just say on the page that the, that the heroine changed or for the heroine to think that she's changed. There has to be some action at the end of the book to show that she's changed. It's not what she says, it's what she does. Mm -hmm. So um, find whatever they did in act one that, that you know, just wasn't working for them and then show the opposite of that in act three. Um, just a hypothetical example, maybe, maybe your heroine is, um, her, maybe the heroine's mother, let's say, has some medical problems. And every time the mom wants to talk to the heroine about it, the heroine just shuts her down and says, oh no, medical stuff is icky and I don't want to talk about that. And the mother feels very uncared for. But at the end of the book, if you wanted to show that the heroine had changed, maybe you would have the heroine take her mother to the doctor's office and actually accompany her and, and hold her hand when the doctor is talking to her to just to show that, that there really has been a change for the better there. Yeah, I love that. And the two are so intricately linked as well, because, you know, it's the flaw that becomes the strength or the strength that becomes the flaw. And it's those things if you're looking for, OK, well, how do I show like what actions do I show? A, you look at look at their flaws and strengths and, and B, what were they like, you know, at the beginning? So, yeah, I love that. Um, you've mentioned stakes. 
And mm -hmm. uh, in the book, you talk about the paradox that often arises with um, stakes. So could you tell everyone a little bit about revising your stakes and the paradox that comes with trying to make stakes bigger and better? I love talking about story stakes. Um, it's actually, I'm, I'm working on a follow-up book to the big picture revision checklist, and it is all about story stakes. Um, it is one of my favorite things to talk about. And as an editor, it's something that I see a lot of writers struggle with, just sort of how to make their stakes bigger, how to make them matter more. And the first thing you have to know about stakes is, have I made the stakes clear? to the reader? Is the reader absolutely clear without a question of, a, you know, what the hero or heroine wants? Because sometimes it's not even on the page. And I have to, when I'm editing, I have to ask my writers, what does your hero want? I'm not sure. So make sure that it's crystal clear to the, to the reader what the hero wants. But when you've made your stakes clear, you have to also make them matter more. And the paradox is that bigger isn't always better. Um, some genres depend on huge problems. So um, for example, maybe in a fantasy novel, the fate of the entire kingdom is at stake. Or in a thriller, maybe the whole like balance of global power is at stake. But when we're reading, it's really hard to get invested in that kind of stakes. It's too big and it's too abstract. And as humans, we just can't process it and we just go numb. So the paradox is that those huge world altering stakes, they have to be brought down to the human level. Mm. You have to make them um, matter to one person or one group of people. You have to ask who is the hero trying to save? Is he trying to save his family? Is he trying to save his friend? Um, and so when you bring that down to that, that personal level and make those huge global stakes matter to one person or one small group of people, then the reader can start caring about the stakes. Um, I, I think a lot about the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings had, you know, the whole fate of Middle Earth at stake, but who Frodo was really fighting for was for the people of the Shire, for, for his village, for his small group. That is really who he wanted to save. So it brought it down to that smaller level where we could start to care more about it. Mm. I think the funny thing is that that paradox is repeated throughout many different aspects of novel writing. So like emotion is the same way for me. Like if you want mm -hmm. to show really big, deep emotions, you don't do these big things. It actually comes down to the small nuanced details. Yeah, And like, and it's those things that, that really make emotion like when somebody dies that let, let's say like in a book it's not the catastrophic wailing that hits home for a reader it's always 
like the character who misses the smell of their morning coffee being brewed by their husband in the morning or you know the way their husband would always leave their slippers wonky or you know like it's it's the tiny details that we connect to and you know we see ourselves in not the huge yeah not the huge expressions of emotion um and I think it's like a real um uh, misnomer that many writers have when they come to writing is that they should show these big stakes and these big emotions via big actions or big whatever and 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 it's just not the case like the more detailed and granular you get you know and the more these little repeated motifs or actions are throughout the story the more they mean so yeah I love that so much um okay so you uh have mentioned already in the show um about the five big scenes um that writers should work on sort of after they've done that uh beginning bit uh with the characters um so can you tell everyone uh what are those five big scenes and why are they so important when you're writing a novel there's always uh, a turning point uh, roughly about every quarter of the novel um so if you think about those big turning point scenes and you'll want to make sure that you revise those first before you go on to the rest of the scenes in the novel so the first one is right at the opening that is the hook the hook is the opening scene that introduces the character and introduces the story world and it always should be in the form of an active scene we don't want a bunch of info dumps we don't want a bunch of backstory or static description the reader wants to jump right into the story with something interesting happening on the page right from the get go then about a quarter of the way through a book it might be earlier sometimes it's about 15 or 20% of the way through the book comes another big turning point um it's sometimes called the point of no return it's sometimes called um the first doorway or the break into act 2 but this is the big scene that really puts the heroine on her story journey so in the wizard of oz this is when dorothy's house lands on the wicked witch in oz um this is this is the big or you know in um in the lightning thief by rick riordan this is when percy jackson uh, finds out that he's half god half human and he goes to camp half blood so this is sort of the, the break from the old world into the new world of the story then at the midpoint, another big turn happens. So when you're revising, you should open your manuscript right to the center page and look at what's happening right in the middle of your story. It should be a big scene filled with action, filled with emotion, filled with drama, something that's going to spin the plot into a new direction. Then about three quarters of the way through the story, give or take, um, that is sort of the low point of the story. That's where the hero feels like all is lost 
and he can't possibly win. And this is as bad as things could ever possibly be. He's worse off now than when the story began. And it just feels hopeless. Then after the character has wallowed a little while, he has the wake up call, which leads to the climax of the book. And the climax should be epic. It should be epic for your genre's definition of epic because every genre is different. If you're writing a thriller, it's probably going to have explosions and guns and death. If you're writing literary fiction or women's fiction, it's probably going to have some sort of reconciliation or new understanding at the end. But just make sure that it's epic based on your version, your genre's version of epic. And the wonderful thing about revising these five big scenes first before you revise the rest of your novel is that once you have these five big scenes in place, the rest of the scenes are a lot easier to revise because these five big scenes are the, the highlight reel of your novel. They're the, they're the, the big ones. So after you've revised these five, the other scenes are either leading up to the, the big turning point or they are the consequences or the fallout from the big turning point. So make it easy on yourself and do the big ones first. Mm. It's funny because I, I think I write those scenes first because I don't write in order. So. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I tend to start with the climax or mm -hmm. the end, something at the end of the book. And then I tend to go back to the beginning and then I hop around. So yeah, like I never thought to edit that way, but um, I'm struggling to edit a book now. So I think I might actually just stop what I'm doing and go back and edit those scenes first. Um, so yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I love that I have helped you find a new way to edit. That makes yeah. me happy. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. In 2016, I deleted all of my posts from Facebook and I closed my account. And I haven't used Facebook in over five years. Um, nothing bad happened. I was just kind of done. But when I tell other authors that I'm not on Facebook, especially other indie authors, they are just shocked. They say, oh no, you can't possibly have a successful indie career without being on Facebook. That's where all your readers are. You must be on Facebook. And first of all, I'm not convinced that's true. Uh, secondly, even if it, that is true, I don't think that it's worth it. I don't think the trade-off is worth it. Uh, I'm still on social media. I have Twitter and I have Instagram and I'm aware that Instagram is owned by Facebook, but um, it, I don't see the same toxic behaviors on Instagram as I do on Facebook. So um, Facebook just doesn't add anything to my life. So I don't use it.
I love that so much. I love that you're just bucking the trend of like a lot of, you know, the basis for indie authors. But what I love more than anything is that it just goes to show there really isn't one way to make it in this business. There are so many different ways to build audiences, so many different ways to build careers and find readers. And I think I think it's so true. Like I, I pretty much do two things on Facebook now and it's I go into the rebel author group and I do a bit of the freelance stuff that I that I do and that is it like I don't use my personal profile um and I don't even do Facebook advertising like I just can't be bothered like I don't like the Facebook advertising platform I'm sure I'd probably earn loads more if I did do it but um it doesn't make me happy so I'm just gonna stick with like AMS ads and bookbub ads because I like those um so yeah like for anybody that tells you you have to do Facebook it's a fucking crock of shit so that's the (laughs) end of that (laughs) amazing well thank you so much for your time today where um tell everyone where they can find out more about you your books services anything else you'd like to add my website is alexcorvo.com and that is spelled K-O-U-R-V-O. So that's where you can find out about me, about my books, about my editing services. I also blog at writingslices.com and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Alex Corvo. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a bunch of bonus stuff, then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And of course, thank you to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Alex Corvo, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am joined by returning rebel, Becca Puglisi, and we are going to be talking all about conflict and celebrating the launch of her latest thesauri with Angela Ackerman, the Conflict Thesauri. And I had the very distinct pleasure of getting to read an advanced copy. And uh, it is, I can say, just as good as all of the other um, thesauri that they have written. So if you have not got a copy yet, you really need one. I think this one will really tighten your stories, help with the stakes, help with personal character, depth and growth. So yeah, join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.